Hello and welcome to the Investment Hour, our new format for the weekly Investors Chronicle podcast. For our regular listeners, don't worry, we'll be keeping all the usual good companies and market stuff, but adding much, much more. This week's big topic shows exactly why we wanted to expand away from just companies and markets. The record low price of oil that you've been seeing, it's uh, at a level that's very interesting to a lot of people. Yes, thank you, Donald Trump, for those pearls of wisdom. It has indeed been a big week for oil. I'm John Human, and this week I'm going to be talking to Neil Wilson about why the price of oil did this and Michael Taylor about what he did about it. The price of a barrel of West Texas Intermediate, which is the benchmark for US oil, today traded as low as minus $40 a barrel. And I'm Megan Boxall, and I'll be talking to the IC's commodities expert, Alex Hamer, about what that means for the London listed companies in the sector. I spoke to a CEO today who said that in Aberdeen, you just see the rigs coming in. You know, they're, they're shutting down for safety reasons to stop workers getting sick. They're shutting down because they, they're looking at more expensive production and they're cutting that. You know, they're cutting down on maintenance work. There's, there's a lot of, you know, changes happening in North Sea. And we've spoken to regular IC pod interviewee Phil Oakley about moneysupermarket.com, a company which has confirmed its dividend and is looking reassuringly solid. Lots of things going on here. Most of it, most of it, I think, reasonably positive. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. But before we get into all of that, John, there's something that's really got your back up this week. Company fundraisings. Yes, indeed. And I've had a big rant about this in my uh, editorial. Lots of companies have been raising money, unsurprisingly, to help them fend off the worst effects of COVID. Uh, but they've been doing it in such a way that's really been quite bad news for private investors. There, there used to be a rule in pr- place under preemption rights that meant a company could only raise 10% uh, of its uh, capital, its outstanding share capital, without going back to its existing shareholders. The authorities, the powers that, that be, have uh, allowed the, that amount to be doubled to 20%. And companies are taking full advantage of this uh, and in some cases offering heavily discounted uh, placings to a select group of institutional investors. And obviously this is very, very bad news uh, for private shareholders who face massive dilution as a result. Um, so, so, yeah, there is a, there's a bit of a campaign going. Uh, I signed an open letter this week to those authorities to do something about this. Um, the FCA amongst them, you know, th- their job is to protect uh, private investors from uh, from things like this, and they seem to have endorsed it. So yeah, I think I don't think it's very good at all. Lots of people are very unhappy about this. Yeah, I mean, hardly surprising. But then, obviously, the alternative is companies going bust. So there's got to be fundraisings, or at least in some some sort of help somehow. Yeah, I don't think anyone's disputing the fact that companies need to raise money. I think they're just disputing the means by which they do that, because those means mean that a portion of the shareholder base, and that portion is the retail shareholder base, are being massively disadvantaged in these circumstances. Um, and there, there, there are alternatives. Um, there are technology alternatives, a company called Primary Bid, whose uh, chief operating officer is, in fact, someone I used to work with in the city many, many years ago, have, have a platform which allows private investors to participate in these things if anyone would use it um so you know there is a request to companies get involved with this company and keep your retail shareholders on side they are very important they are very engaged they are uh, a group of shareholders are very important for the market as a whole and and the health of the market and price discovery i i I really think it's symptomatic of the the way that private investors are actually treated which i i would say is very badly overall And I think the time has come for something to be done about it. Mm, Well, I mean, coronavirus is showing up. It's now the time to do a lot of stuff about a lot of issues. And that's something that we may explore in podcasts to come. I think we'll be exploring that a lot. This week, 
oil is the big story and you've spoken to Neil Wilson who luckily or perhaps mystically wrote the cover feature about oil this week even before the price had crashed. Let's listen to what Neil had to say. So welcome to Neil Wilson. How are you doing Neil? Hi, yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. It's been a busy week, but I'm I'm sitting in my um, home office study and uh, just looking out the window, waiting for a uh, beer de- delivery to arrive. So it's all good. Nice. Um, yeah, it has been a busy week. We we kind of spoke a few weeks ago um, when we were discussing potential things to write about, and oil came up, and we we went for it, and the timing has proved spectacularly good. It has, yeah. I mean, the the the, the sort of what's happened in the oil markets over the last few days has, has been um, utterly unprecedented. Um, just to sort of recap, I guess the on uh, on Monday the the front month uh, WTI, that's West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. contract for oil um, dropped uh, for the first time ever into negative territory. So people were paying uh, to to get the oil taken away from them. Um, it was it was unprecedented, partly just to do with market technicalities because WTI is 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 a physical contract. So if if you're holding that contract um, at expiry, then then you have to take delivery of that oil and you need to find somewhere to put it. And normally, of course, what happens is people are just rolling these contracts into the future months. Um, but because of the coronavirus and the lockdown, um, and partly because OPEC had been pumping so aggressively um, at the start of the year, um, the the tanks are getting full. There's nowhere to put the oil. Uh, no one's using up any uh, any refined products. Um, uh, the jets, you know, the airlines are all uh, not not moving. No one's driving. Um, so there's nowhere to put the oil. And uh, at that point, you get this um, unusual, very unusual position where, where people are are, are 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 being paid to take to take the oil. I mean, is there no storage at all? There's. So there is some. I think there's there is a bit in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the US. They they've got four sort of cave systems, um, which they can fill up a bit more. But um, and Donald Trump has talked about buying seventy five million barrels. That's that will help. It would help if it happens. Um, and whilst it's maybe not full, it's sort of fully leased. So we think that we think that probably. Um, the, the sort of Cushing hub in Oklahoma, where all the WTI goes to, is, is pretty much going to be full by sort of mid-May. Um, and the problem for WTI, and this is why you know Brent prices, which is international benchmark, Brent is what we produce in the North Sea and in, in the Middle East, um, that was not nearly so badly affected just because it, it's it's a seaborne commodity. You can get it out to many more places. Um, it takes a long time to travel in the tankers, so that there's a sort of extra capacity at sea. You can you can rent um, more tankers to fill up, uh, whereas WTI is is is, is essentially a landlocked commodity. You, you can only, you can't really get it out anywhere else. So. You need to store it in these in these tanks at Cushing, uh, Oklahoma, and and a couple other places. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be tough, I think, over the next few weeks because the storage constraints are not going to get any better, and uh, I don't think the demand side is is ready to pick up just yet. Should we talk about demand? Because there's some interesting charts that you put in your feature uh, that that really you know hit home how how um how serious this situation is in terms of the uh the kind of lack of consumption that we're seeing yeah i mean the 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 
the demand for gasoline in the US has collapsed. Um, the, the demand for uh, jet fuels collapsed. The, the the demand in April for for all oil is down about thirty percent uh, from last year, um, which is a phenomenal amount of, of oil. It's it's sort of thirty million barrels per day of oil, um, and it's expected to to. To, it's expected to improve, but but slowly, um, and it's just the case that if if no one's driving anywhere or flying anywhere, there's there's just not the there's not the pickup and gasoline in the U.S. So, for example, just just to, to sort of show how much the U.S. is is a driver of this, um, uh, ten million barrels per day is which is a tenth of global demand is. Or global supply traditionally is um, is just people is just for auto use, just for people driving in the US, uh, and that is a tenth of all the oil used up every day in, in the world. So, um, hence why if you see that sort of level of lockdown that we're seeing, um, that that has a very very sharp and immediate effect on on oil demand. And at the same time, you've got a chart um, on the first page of the feature uh, looking at US fuel production, which is, is at a record level. So not only have you had this massive slump in demand, but you've also got some pretty, pretty serious production coming into the market as well. Yeah, so you, we have had. I think I think at the very edge of that chart, you, it sort of drops off a cliff basically very very quickly. So I think um, you are actually seeing that the, it had been hitting a record high of 13 million barrels per day, I think, for the US, just above that, uh, coming into this uh, sort of twin supply and demand shock. Um, and it's now uh, drastically fallen back already. And I think it's going to continue to fall back over the coming weeks as we see more sort of shut-ins. Um, and I think that's the point. It's, it's, it, we've dealt with a twin supply and demand shock. It's um, demand shock from coronavirus. Um, and on the supply side, U.S. oil has been increasing uh, in in output we've had more production record production from brazil last year uh norway increasing production and then opec back in march their deal with russia unraveled and they sparked a price war and flooded the market so you had this massive double shock and that's that's why the, the, oil, the oil market at the moment is is uh, so precarious well that's something you've been looking at in your daily market outlooks that you write for us the the ongoing uh, sort of geo geopolitics behind this um you talk about um shut-in shutdowns of, of some of the production in the u.s but but i think you mentioned in the feature that that's not actually quite as easy as it sounds yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends very much on on the on the fields in question. Um, but essentially, um, it's not just a case of turning the tap off. It can require a lot of money to 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 mothball, and then a lot of a lot of extra money to then get it going again. Uh, I think, particularly in Russia, that's that's a problem uh, with their fields. But I think it's much easier in Saudi Arabia. I think they're much more able to to sort of turn it off and on at will, and they've always been the swing producer. Um, US is it's not quite quite that easy with with the shale uh, fields. Um, so I think what it means is that. Um, Producers have not been able to just say, "Yeah, we'll turn the we'll turn the pipes off, no problem," uh, just to help the the, the situation. Um, and it and then what it means is that with prices so low and you you get forced shut-ins of of oil production, it, it might not be economic to to reopen. So we could see um, abandoned assets, supply being lost permanently, um, and of course that has a knock-on to the financial sector with Wall Street. 
um, the big banks on Wall Street on the hook for around about two hundred billion dollars worth of loans to the to the U.S. energy sector. Um, so it has repercussions for the wider financial markets. Do, do, I mean, are we seeing signs that that's filtering through into the wider market? Uh, not yet. We're still. I mean, we're still looking pretty good. I mean, up to sort of thirty percent off the lows still for the S and P, and um, I, I don't think you're seeing. Um, that much stress yet. I think with the, the efforts of the Federal Reserve and the stimulus that's coming through um, to support the banking sector, that that there, there's a sense that maybe they're they're not going to face the same problems as they have done maybe say in 2008. So even if they do uh, chalk up some pretty monumental losses on these loans, basically the Fed's got their backs. Yeah, I mean, one one thing it does suggest that you know, if if there is a, a, a you know significant cut to production, um, that that actually that might support the oil price in the future, and that's something that that I think you wanted to pull out um, in the feature is like where where does the price go from here? What are we looking at? Yeah, I think um, I think by the end of the year, the, there's there's a few banks um, putting out forecasts uh, as they do all the time. I think you'd be looking towards fifty dollars a barrel, perhaps by the end of the year again, uh, as supply comes out and as OPEC is, has fully OPEC and Russia, remember, have fully committed to these production cuts, which are quite quite drastic, and they are going to run through till twenty twenty two, April of, of of two years hence. So the the there is production coming off. Um, I think there's a potential for a, a spike if you if you see supply being damaged. As uh, say, if supply gets damaged a lot worse than than expected, then um, then you could see a spike in the oil price in say sort of 2021 uh, there or thereabouts. But it, it still it remains a bit of guesswork just simply because we don't know what the demand um, will be because we're still not out of the woods in terms of the coronavirus and the lockdowns and the economic damage um, that's being that's being felt. So the demand side is really the 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 main unknown right now. Have you seen anyone brave enough to try and uh, estimate when we might see some bounce back in demand? Um, well, I saw, um, I saw, I think Goldman today uh, just put out a note saying they think uh, May the the demand in May will be um, uh, down 18 million barrels per day for oil. So that's uh, that's an improvement from 29.7 million barrels per day in April. So there's sort of suggesting that we we will get a pickup in demand as soon as, as early as May. Um, but in terms of the global economy, I mean, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think anyone knows what the what the outlook is. I, there could be permanent changes to behaviour, permanent loss of demand in, in areas like um, like jet fuel because of people flying a lot less. Um, uh, but then on the other side of the coin, if they're enforcing social distancing measures, um, and you have to leave the, I mean, this is just an example. I'm just sort of choosing this as an example, but you know, you have to leave the middle aisle of the the middle seat of the airplane empty. Um, then you need more. Then you need, effectively, you need more planes to fly in order to carry the same number of passengers that you used to carry. Um, and so, demand demand could find uh, a boost from that side of things. So it's 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 a lot of uncertainty there. Indeed, I mean, you you also mentioned in the feature Tesla and and potentially you know the, the coming electric vehicle revolution as being uh, another um, uh, another factor that could uh, destroy a bit of demand as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
I think I make try and make the point in the in the piece that sort of that this comes at quite an important moment in in the structural shift as as companies move away from hydrocarbons, governments move try and move away from hydrocarbons. Saudi Arabia, the whole idea behind floating Aramco um, last year was to, is to wean itself away from from oil uh, dependency by 2030. Uh, that down the line, I think. I think down the line, you know, oil will be worth not the last barrel of oil that's produced will be worth nothing because there won't be anywhere to, any use for it. Uh, but that's a long way off, uh, a very long way off. And and if anything, then cheap oil right now just makes it even harder to wean ourselves off. You actually need a high price of oil to help pay for the kind of adjustments and the investment in green technology that these companies like Shell and BP want to make because they know the way things are going. But they they need positive cash flow. Uh, from from selling oil in order to to fund that and and if you just have cheap oil then then it's just going to be it's going to be a lot tougher to do that indeed you mentioned bp in the piece and uh, its aspirations to be carbon neutral i actually really like the uh, well i'm quoting you here it's oil that will pay from for the shift uh from oil in terms of the kind of the short-term outlook um i know this was the uh the, the the negative oil price was a technical factor based on futures contracts could we see a repeat in the in the months ahead um Given that you know demand isn't likely to bounce back, and those contracts still work in the same way, uh, yeah. In the short answer is yes. I think um, the June um, WTI contract could be could become very shaky towards um, towards expiry, because um, I think there's still the same sort of players in the market. It may be quite inexperienced players um, who could get caught the wrong side of that particular trade, and then be trying to offload the contract um, towards expiry and then finding no bid. And when you, if there's no bid, you, you, the only bid's going to come from the physical people who can take physical delivery. And if they're not, if they're not wanting any, then, uh, then you could see the same problems. I think with Brent, it should be a bit easier. We've got the expiry coming up um, on our particular platform. It's, it's going to roll on Friday. Um, I think that, that in theory, could suffer the some problems, but it's cash settled, not physically settled, so it should not experience the same kind of uh, stresses in the in the sort of functioning of the of the market. Yeah, I mean, it, there is an interesting sort of side effect with this is that um, you have oil uh, exchange traded funds or ETCs uh, that, that that obviously are based on the futures contracts. That we're seeing a little bit of uh, bit of damage there. Um, I mean, what, what are you seeing on the trading desk, Neil? Well, uh, we're seeing very high volumes um, in in oil um, in oil futures. Um, our, I know the CME Group experienced its busiest day ever for the June contract. There's two million futures contracts um, traded um, on our platform. It's very, very, very uh, high volume as well. The, I think you know the problem, and and this is a sort of comment on on the nature of trading and the retail traders is trying to always catch the catch the falling knife and trying to guess where the bottoms hit and, and, and people can get can get caught the wrong side of that. Um, but that said we have actually on on the sort of Thursday we have seen a bit more stability coming back into the oil market. Um, so those those the, those that were trying to call the bottom sort of on Tuesday probably probably made uh, at least in the in the last day or so I don't want to jinx it but they have they have made a decent call there because it has the June contracts have have uh, rallied off their lows. But it sounds like there's plenty of scope to be caught out in the future. Always, always. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely a market to be very careful of. I would suggest. 
Thank you very much, Neil. That's absolutely fantastic. It's a, it's a really great read, as I say, brilliantly timed. Why did we? Why were we talking about oil? It was. It was. I guess it was the. Um, it was the geopolitics stuff that prompted us to look at this in the first place. Probably putting the world to rights in a pub somewhere back back when they were back when they were open. <laughs> yeah. Well, one day, one day. Well, enjoy your beer delivery when it turns up, Neil. Uh, what, what have we got coming? Uh, I've got some from uh, local Marlowe Brewery, Rebellion Brewery. Uh, some uh, some nice light light ale. Fantastic. Actually, on that note, I'm going to give a plug to my local brewery, who I'll be dropping <laughs> later. The Malden Brewing Company, Puck's Folly. It's fantastic stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Speak soon. Thank you. Cheers, John. So we've heard what the oil market has done and some of the technical reasons why the oil price turned negative this week. Um, but what does this all mean for, for the companies that, uh, that are trading on the London market, many of which uh, our listeners and our readers will be invested in? Uh, Alex Hayman has got some thoughts there. Hi, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I guess over to you, what, what's the situation? What's, what does it mean? What have we seen from UK listed company share prices this week as the oil price has collapsed? It's, it's been interesting. There's, when the oil price went, or uh, part of the oil price went negative on Monday, um, there was a pretty strong reaction um, downwards for for listed oil companies, mostly ten percent drops. But remember, this is this is after a month of of them bouncing bouncing around after the big 9th of March um, collapse. So it's not unexpected. And and actually, if you look at the the big UK oil and gas companies like Tullow Premier, um, they actually bounced back a day or two later when people realised that they were not dealing in WTI um, contracts at all. Um, so there's a little bit of you know quick reaction and then and then people have relaxed a little bit. Explain that. So obviously WTI the US benchmark. So what's happening that that price is is quite a US situation. So fetch fact where where are they op- operating? What what impact does that crash have, if any, on them? Um, that's it's a really interesting example because Petrofac is a is a Middle East. Um, focused um, infrastructure and services company. So they pick up big contracts to build and, and maintain rigs, refineries in some cases. Um, so the, the really big infrastructure that oil companies rely on. And a few weeks ago, they already announced that they were going to um, change their spending this year significantly. So they've, they've cancelled a 25 cent dividend. They want to cut um, capital spending by 40%. And then reduce further further costs by a hundred billion dollars. Since then, and we can see, you know, the the I would say the, the prudency of, of those decisions by them losing um, a one point five billion dollar contract um, in um, uh, in one of the Gulf states, one of the Emirates. Um, it was building a um, a gas, massive gas plant, and they, they've they've cancelled that now. So that's immediately a significant chunk off their their order book. Um, so it's it's pretty serious for the services companies. Um, you know, Petrofac is, is in an advantage position because it's in the Middle East. You look at companies like Hunting, exposed to onshore US, they're really going to struggle. Um, they already had a tough year last year. Um, there's Hunting, you know, Wood Group is also exposed there. So the services companies are really are really having, having to make big cuts um, in terms of workforce, unfortunately, in terms of expansion spending because, you know, no one wants it anymore. And... Anything so so a lot of them actually have their own technology so that so that kind of that kind of spending's gone as well beyond the services companies I mean they're kind of one block in the in this in this pyramid you've got companies like like Tullo they're also trying to work out how best to keep cash on the books because it's heavily indebted 
um, they want to save a billion dollars or they want to gain a billion dollars this year uh, and they've just sold an asset they have on the books for 800 and something million. They've sold that for 575 just to kind of get some cash flowing. And, and there's still some roadblocks to their to, to them getting that money, but they're just these companies are really scrambling for cash. So obviously cash is something that a lot of companies are, are worried about at the moment, but then when you combine it with this, this um, madness in the in the oil price, obviously it is is worrying. But how about the the London listed drillers, most of which are North Sea drillers rather than US onshore, which is what the the negative price was was related to the US onshore. So what's the outlook like now for the for the shells and BPs of of this world? Yeah, I think um you know Shell and BP have have a good amount um, of production coming out of the North Sea. Um, they're fairly balanced, so they have gas as well. They are going; their revenue is going to to fall a fair bit this year because people just aren't buying petrol. Uh, so that hits their retail, or it hits the whole chain. So it hits retail, it hits refining, it hits production. But I think the ones that we will see the most kind of action out of are the are the North Sea independents. So you know, I spoke to a CEO today who said that in Aberdeen you just see the rigs coming in. You know, they're they're shutting down for safety reasons to stop workers getting sick. They're shutting down because they, you know, they're looking at more expensive production and they're cutting that. You know, they're cutting down on maintenance work. There's there's a lot of, you know, changes happening in North Sea. Um, so the, the, the CEO I, I spoke to was from Serica. Um, and that's that's an interesting story because they're they're eighty percent gas. Um, and while gas prices are low, they um they've just brought in a dividend, which is, you know, we've just talked about all these companies cutting dividends, they're cutting spending, they're, they're making massive changes. And Serica, because of its gas um, and, and specific company position where they, they've just had their full year um, of, of bigger production, um, they're bringing in um, this payout. And they reckon that if they lose production for three months and gas falls, falls further, they can still afford that 3P dividend. Um, so, so the North Sea is kind of a really interesting place to look at at the moment because the heavily indebted companies are struggling, but also you've got um, gas players um, who who are actually not that um, much worse off right now. So the headlines, obviously, oil price stands negative. It isn't actually a calamity for the whole industry. It's yeah, it's it it is serious um, because you know while um, WTI May contracts went negative and June is not looking great, um, that kind of negative. Um, impact, or, or sorry, negative perception of of oil as a commodity um, means that Brent has also come down, and it recovered a bit today. I think it's at about twenty five dollars. Um, but for example, we look at a company like Enquest, um, and they said they were trying to reassure investors. Um, I think last week that their cash flow break even is thirty three dollars per barrel of oil equivalent. Um, I say equivalent because they have some gas production as well. You know, for, for this year, they say that um, they can get to a twenty-five dollar cash flow break-even, but even that looks um, a bit optimistic with the, with the current Brent price. So, you know, things are changing very quickly, and and you know, we've had a few weeks of of oil companies scrambling to to work out what they're going to do for the rest of the year, and you know, who knows what's going to happen next week. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Everything is moving so quickly. It's hard to keep up sometimes. If you had one pick in the sector, have you got a company that you think looks in a better position than anyone else? Uh, I think I think look at look at gas. Mm-hmm. Some of these companies might have eighty percent gas, twenty percent oil. So there is 
you know, if oil miraculously comes back, they do have some exposure to that um, that climbing. Um, you know, even companies that that are valued on their future production. So someone like Energy and um, they're valued basically on their exposure to um, they've got two gas fields um, where supply is already contracted to Israel um, and the gas plants are being built. So this this company is valued on future production, which means at the moment they're not that fussed um, and their share price has stayed fairly strong. Even even onshore US diversified gas and oil, they've spent you know into the billions this um, this past few years buying up assets in the Appalachian Basin, so not the Permian where everyone's going under at the moment, but the Appalachian Basin. Um, and they're, they're doing fine as well because, because once again, their, their portfolio is gas. So those two companies are interesting to look at. Out of the two, diversified gas and oil is the one with the actual revenue at the moment. So, um, um, and they maintain their dividend and have done a buyback program as well. So, so they're, the one, they're the ones actually doing okay. Um, who knows if, if that's going to continue over the next few months, but they've certainly put out strong statements about continuing payouts and, and um, staying strong and even, and even buying up more assets this year. Um, so I, I think investors should have a look at those two. Awesome. Okay, good note to end on. Thanks very much, Alex. Thank you. Investment there is one group that will be enjoying the volatile conditions of the market right now, and that is traders. So we've spoken to our very own trader, Michael Taylor, to see how he is taking advantage of the mayhem. How are you doing, Michael? I'm good, thanks, John. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, you've written about Shell uh, in your column this week. Um, it's, it's a bit outside your sort of uh, size bracket usually, isn't it? It is, yeah. But with with stocks moving, uh, huge volatility, uh, it's, it's, it's good to trade these stocks because you can get in and out very easy. There's not any liquidity issues. Um, you can buy and sell as much as you want. You're not going to make a dent in Shell's price, which is nice. Um, and it's, it's moved huge amounts over the past few weeks. I mean, the other day it was up 20% in a single day. How often do you do you see anything like that? I mean, I'll, I'll be telling my grandkids about that one day, I'm sure. Yeah, no, you don't see it on a mega cap. Are, are you avoiding some of the small cap stuff then for uh, for sort of liquidity reasons? Well, it's just if you can get the volatility in the larger stuff, why not trade the larger stuff? And um, it just makes more sense. The spreads are narrower. Um, they're sets traded, so you can get in on the bid with direct market access, and you don't have to deal with the market makers, which is nice. So, what's the uh, what's the attraction of Shell? I mean, why, why Shell not BP? Before we come on to the actual uh, trade you're looking at, that's a good question. I think probably because I've looked at the BP chart, um, so I tend to follow a couple of them but shell i think the attraction is bigger and when it went down to i think it was just under 900 pence the other week uh, that sort of confirms a bottom so now we've got a point to trade off and i think i mentioned this in in the article this week there's a chart there um a lot of traders now are going to be looking at that as the bottom so they'll be eyeballing that and they'll be putting bids in and looking to get long because we've got that previous support point, whereas before it was just falling and falling and, and nobody really knew how far it could fall. Um, so we had people saying this is opportunity of the decade, uh, like 1,400 pence, and then it fell another 500 pence to 900. So you never really know how far these things can fall. It's, uh, the old catch a falling knife comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's the trade you're looking at now? What, uh, what's interesting you about Shell at this point? Um, so it's up today. 
it's it's up to about 1400 but if it gets to around 900 i'd be looking to take a long position um because you can get in you can get out very easily uh, and i think that's a, a good risk to reward because if you've got the support as i say people look at it that and who knows what can happen i mean we had the the may futures expiring tuesday negative prices for the first time in history uh, for delivery of oil so I mean, who knows what can happen over the next few weeks but it, it, it's quite fun to watch um obviously if you're on the wrong side of the position it's not very fun at all um but to spectate it's it's quite amazing so, so you're waiting for it to come back again then essentially before uh, before taking an, uh, a long trade yeah i don't really want to get long here because i don't think the risk reward is in my favor and that's really what what I care about. I mean, if Shell could be uh, 20 quid, and I, th- I think if the risk to reward was in my favour, I'd take it. Um, I don't really have a problem with buying higher or shorting lower. It's it's all about the risk to reward and the, the chart pattern. What, what are you worried about? What are the risks you worried about uh, uh, You know, with the price at this level? Oh, it's just purely the pattern. There's not really any support or resistance to, to trade from. It's in the middle of a range. I mean, there's there's not really any point for me to buy or sell. What about oil itself? I mean, are you looking at? Do you, I mean, would you trade the underlying commodity, or is that something you would steer clear of? I steer clear of it. It's not my area of expertise, so I just leave it. I follow oil just because of oil stocks. Um, so it sort of gives me an idea of what's actually happening. Um, but I never trade it. I don't trade any commodities. I don't trade forex. I don't trade Bitcoin or anything like that. Uh, purely UK stocks. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so you, I mean, apart from Shell, are you, uh, are you looking, you know, casting your eye across the uh, the uh, the hydrocarbon complex for uh, for other opportunities? It's on my list of things to do. The never-ending <laughs> list of things to do. But Michael, you're stuck uh, at home. Um, that that, that never-ending list to do should be getting shorter and shorter and shorter right now. Well, sadly not. No, I've been given jobs by the boss, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so as well as uh, trading throughout the day and uh, looking through charts on the night, yeah, I've been hoovering and stuff, um, <laughs> painting the back wall. <laughs> sounds sounds fun. Um, should we talk quickly about Blue Prism, um, which you wrote about in your column last week? Um, talk us through what 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 you uh, what you were describing in the magazine last week and and, and kind of what's happened since. Yeah, so I was looking at the the price looked like it was about to start trending downwards, and I think it was a point around ten pounds. There's a, a big support line there and another one at £8. So there would have been the opportunity to get short around 10 um, traded downwards to around 8 and then double up. But um, my thought was that they would need to do a placing at some point because if you look at the cash flow of operations, um, they were burning so much. And uh, I did think that in this market, it would probably be good to get it done sooner rather than later. And that's exactly what they've done this week with an ABB. Um, pretty, pretty good price, to be fair. 4.5% discount, $100 million. Uh, for a company that's making no money, it's it's a fairly good raise. I'm, I'm quite impressed. But, yeah, for me, that takes it off the short list for now. Um, might come back onto the radar again, but for now it's done. So you didn't get the trade on then on that one then? I didn't get the trade on. It didn't come towards my entry. Um, so I missed it, unfortunately. But yeah, there's always other stocks, which is good. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of places coming up. I expect. I mean, I, I, there is an interesting lesson there, I, I, though, that you know that that you had a plan and stuck to it. Yeah, I, th- I think discipline is key. If you're going to trade, then 
ideally you want to take the best setups as possible. Uh, what you don't want to do is is get the fear of missing out where you see a rise in stock, everyone piles on um, only for the bid to collapse and, and you're left holding the baby. Um, so you want to be buying at the ideal points continuously. And uh, that's that's why I said earlier, the price doesn't really matter. You've just got to have a plan and you've got to know what you want to see and then do your best to trade it. And if it doesn't work out, if you don't get the trade on or you haven't lost any money um, and you just look for the next one. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, good chatting to you. We'll, uh, we'll have to chat again soon. Indeed. Thank you, John. Take care. You too. See you later. Investment no doubt investors will be looking for some oases of calm in these crazy markets. And we've spoken to Phil Oakley to see if he has any ideas where they may find it. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm all right, Megan. How are you? Good. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. So you've written about a positive company story this week, a company whose dividend you're confident will be sustained, which is nice in the current environment. Money supermarket, what's, what's going on there? It's something I've never looked at before, but it's, um, it's sort of ticks a lot of boxes in terms of being highly profitable, lots of, generates lots of cash. And I just wanted to have a deeper dive into the actual business and find out how it, how it makes its money and what, what's really behind, behind the numbers. Yeah, so let's start with that. So obviously, people, like you say, people will have seen Money Supermarket. A lot of people will have used Money Supermarket. But how does it actually make money? Yeah, I'm essentially the business model is is quite simple. It's it's a middleman, and so what goes on is that when the customer comes to the money supermarket website, types in their details, it hopefully finds the right product for them. Now, once found the right product, if they then click on a link and enter their details, that's when money supermarket can go to an insurance company or an energy company and say, hey, I've just found you a customer, pay me some commission. And that's essentially how money supermarket makes money. Yeah, which is actually an interesting point in terms of the business model. Obviously, yeah, it is so reliant on what's going on elsewhere. So when there's the energy price cap has a big influence on how much revenue it makes from people switching energy suppliers every year. And it then also is reliant on people actually completing. So how's it coping with coronavirus, with what's going on at the moment? Uh, not bad, I think, is, is the answer, because it's dealing in, in products that we all need, regardless of what's going on. You know, we all need house insurance, and people still need gas and electricity and broadband and all, all these other, other kinds of things. What they don't need as much is travel insurance, package holidays, car rental. What's not doing as well for them is things like credit card switching, personal loans, because banks are getting a bit nervous now. They're starting to think that perhaps lending money in the current environment is not a good thing. Very simple sort of rule for this business is if, if prices are rising, so if insurance prices are rising and energy bills are rising, you get more switching. If you look at the insurance side of it, which is half its revenue, that's still going great because car insurance premiums and home insurance premiums are going up, so people want to switch. And the energy side, which is the next biggest is also doing quite well as well. 
And so it's holding up pretty well. This is pretty resilient business. And you can see that because they feel confident that they've, they can pay their dividends to shareholders. And we've seen, obviously, recently, lots of companies coming out and saying, look, we're not confident about how our finances are going to look. And so we're going to have to not pay the dividend. We're going to have to hold on to the cash. Uh, money supermarkets said, no, we're okay. You know, we've got plenty of cash. The business is doing quite nicely and we can pay the dividend, which is a, you know, a big tick in the box. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that does, I mean, doesn't just read into the operations. It's actually the way it's been managed, the way it manages its cash, how profitable it is. Its numbers are all, they're all pretty nice. And you've, you've obviously looked into that a lot, your speciality. So what, what sort of profit numbers are we, are we seeing? What are the things that you like about, about money supermarkets figures? Well, I, I look at three things in figures, really. So I look at profit margin, so how, how profitable its sales are, how much of its sales it turns into profit. I then look at return on investment, which is or return on capital employed, which is the profit, the operating profit and the trading profit as a percentage of the money invested in the business. And then I'll look at the ability to turn the profits into cash or free cash flow. And then I, I spend a lot of time looking at things like free cash flow margin. So you look at free cash flow as a percentage of revenue. So from, you know, this is a business that's making, what, 30% profit margin, high 40s return on investment, and free cash flow margin of about 25%. There are not many businesses on the UK stock market that can do that and can do that consistently. If you then join that up with a, a reasonable view of the business that you think that they can grow or keep growing, then you have the basis of a pretty good investment because you can keep throwing off those profits, those cash, that cash, and that can get get paid back to investors. I mean, one, one of the interesting things about this business is that you lay down the IT system, pay the staff to maintain them and keep them working nicely. Then you actually don't have to spend that much more money. And that is the kind of characteristic that you think, hey, I quite like that as a, bit of, as a business. And a lot of the costs are also quite fixed. I mean, the marketing revenue part of it is a massive chunk of it. But you are, you know, you can argue that, that you know they have to spend that because it's because this business is so much about branding and awareness. But you know, you get once you've covered those costs, each extra pound of, of sales that you get just basically drops straight through to profits. And so the bigger that gets, the more profitable the business gets. And that's what's been going on. I mean, it does, it certainly ticks the boxes and the fact that it's now confirmed this dividend is uh is a nice a very nice for investors who may be worried about the state of other companies at the moment but obviously investors have realized that money supermarket is holding up better than others its share price is only down 10 percent year to date which is not nearly as bad as the wider market is um will do you think that the the general turbulence in the markets may mean it will come off more in the in the coming weeks and months Difficult to say. Um, mm. Depends. Depends what happens. I mean, I think if the current levels of uncertainty stay with us, and that's my my view that this is 
not going to get fixed quickly, then I think a business which has seemed to be pretty resilient is still going to, and also paying a dividend, is probably going to be still quite likable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could argue if we get a situation where things open up again and people get a bit more confident, they might switch out of a business like this into something that's more cyclical and can benefit from a up to up you know, an increase in economic activity. Yeah, that's possible too. But I, I think this is the kind of business that, you know, if you look at businesses that have done well for the last decade, they have been businesses that people can believe in that stick them stick with through thick and thin. And I think the characteristics of this business are, you know, they, they've not changed. Mm-hmm. And what's the long term outlook for this sort of market? I see it's really crowded, which is why it's having to spend so much on marketing. Could this, in the long term, this the, the challenges that, that everyone's facing actually thin out that market a bit and make the long term look even more attractive for, for the, I mean, it is one of the two biggest players in the, in the price comparison space. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is where I, you know, if you ask me where I've got a concern about this business, it's, it's its ability to grow because the market is pretty mature. And as you say, it's, it's pretty crowded and saturated. So I think there's certain things that it can do to take a bigger slice of the market. There are certain parts of the market where you think there's still capability to grow, certain parts of the insurance market, um, other kinds of products. I think the travel side of it is quite interesting. When the travel market comes back, I think there's, there's more to go for there. But I think... I mean, they, they're saying that they think, the, I mean, the market has been growing. You know, the, there are, I mean, they've got 13 million customers um, last year. So, that, so it is something that is accepted. And I think if we, you know, get into an economy that, where money is tight, then, you know, you think, well, maybe this is something that can benefit. So there's, I mean, they're saying they, they think the market can grow maybe 5% a year for the next few years. We'll see. But I think there's things that they can do which can get more people to go to their website. So they're spending a lot of time making the website easier to use. The other thing that they're doing is trying to make the mobile phone use of this service a lot easier. And particularly when I say easier, the ability to actually buy something on it, because what Mm. tends to be happening is that people look at it on an app and then they don't go and transact. That's the that's the experience. Yeah, it was not quick enough, and you I don't know your commutes over, and then you uh, and then you don't complete the transaction. And especially if the if that consumer has entered the money supermarket site through a Google ad, money supermarket will have paid for the Google ad, and then they won't have actually made any money from that customer. Which yeah is obviously problematic. So. Yeah, tech is definitely seems to be something that they're really working on. But as you say, growth in such a saturated market is never going to be straightforward. No, I mean, I think there's other things they're doing as well. They're trying to make make it more personalised as well. You know, they're trying to get people to actually 
log into a site and stay logged in. And, and I think they've got about 600,000 users now that are having their energy bills, their credit, their credit to rating or credit score, sorry, being monitored on a day-to-day basis. And then it, it then offers products that become more attractive on the basis of that. So this, this is a kind of a change from sort of not just being a comparison site, but also being a monitoring site. And a lot of this comes down to the success of this or otherwise is going to come down to trust. You know, how how will customers trust giving their information over to Money Supermarket or Money Supermarket's computers? I mean, people are happy to do it to Google every day. Um, but it's obviously, well, hopefully you think it's anonymous. But obviously, with, if you're logging in with a name, then... But we do, we do with you know we do it with so many companies. So many companies know so much about us. So I'm thinking that's not perhaps such a big deal. But I think this is this is interesting in terms of if they get into monitoring. The other the other thing that they're trying to get into is sort of which is always is another trust part of it is like automatic energy switching, um, where you just automatically get switched over to the cheapest provider once a year. And I'm a little bit iffy on that because I think it, it can create a few problems both for the for the user and also the supplier because the supplier wants the customer to stay long term it doesn't want it to switch and I think money supermarkets got a bit of juggling about to do on this because it's like fund managers that churn portfolios if if customers think that because we know that money supermarket only gets paid if switch, if they people switch, if if people think that they're switching too much, then perhaps there's a breakdown in trust there. Mm. And I think I think if they sort of limit it to say annual switching, that's probably and that, that's what my I understand what they're trying to do, so that it doesn't become constant moving about because that's mm. just then yeah there's there's perhaps something in it so there's lots of things going on here most of it most of it i think reasonably positive yeah which is i mean in this environment it's nice to have a company which seems to be yeah holding its own and providing some reassurance to shareholders thanks very much phil nice to be positive It isn't just oil in the Investors Chronicle this week. There is still the small matter of a global pandemic for investors to navigate, even if it has been off the front pages for a few hours. Uh, And of course, we've got a lot of ideas to help you do that. In this week's magazine, you'll also find a preview of next week's first quarter bank results when we will see how they are coping with COVID. Alex Hamer has had a busy week. Uh, He's also looking at what commodities are doing the opposite of oil at the moment and rising. And an update from House Builder Barrett Developments sheds light on how coronavirus is infecting the UK housing market. Uh, Meanwhile, Algie Hall and Simon Thompson are both on the hunt for small cap shares with lots of upside. And we have some results at last, including the much discussed on this podcast, Fever Tree Drinks. Um, And those results are testament to Phil Oakley's uncanny forecasting abilities. There's lots in the PF and fund section, uh, including a selection of shockproof funds, which they'll be looking at on their podcast. In the meantime, thank you to all of our guests. Thank you, Megan. And thank you all for listening. Look out for the mag in the shops if you can get out. Drowning in oil, what the plunging oil price means for investors. Or if you're still stuck indoors, get online and subscribe, where you'll find lots of extra content that you won't find in the mag. Thank you.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.